We have seated now. Enjoy me for a moment. Prayer for the sermon. All of our hearts are well, we pray first and with gratitude. Well, thank you for your word. And thank you for this sermon you prepared for us, Lord. Uh, through our pastor, Mike, Lord, and in his heart throughout this week and in his mind, the efforts and the work that he has done, Lord, you prepared this word for us. Lord, and we all here to hear it. Lord, I pray that you would let the worries of the week and all the stresses and the things that set us back and distract us now, Lord, that they would fall away. You would uh, help us to focus now on your word, your word preached, Lord. on your word for each and every one of us, because again, we are here to hear it. Thank you, Pastor Mike, and the FPs for and I pray for him as he shares this word that indeed he would also reap a harvest from it for himself um, as well as the rest of us, Lord, that he himself would uh, be changed by your word as you promise us you will. Lord, as we study your word, as we read your word, Lord, we know. That we not come back unchanged. So, Lord, change us now because of it, Lord. Thank you for all the work that's been put in, Lord. Thank you for the inspiration and your power, Lord. And I pray that your spirit comes strongly within all of us, Lord, as we respond to this work that you prepare. All these things we pray. Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome again, family, and God bless you. May the grace of the Lord be with you as we open up our Bibles today. I encourage you to grab your Bible, turn, and open to Mark chapter 10. We are uh, two weeks back into the gospel according to Mark. And today we are looking at verses 13 through 22. Mark 13 through 22, uh, where we will see a couple of different interactions that Jesus has. Uh, first with some little children, and then with one who is uh, called by the gospel writers a rich young ruler. And so once you find that, Mark chapter 10, verse 13, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word today. After we have finished reading, I will say that this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond with a heart of true praise by saying, thanks be to God. Let's begin. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Here we see two different interactions. As I said, first of all, Jesus with uh, his disciples and these little children. In verses 13 through 16. And the second little vignette uh, that Mark gives us is this interaction that Jesus has with one who is called the rich young ruler. Uh, here in Mark's gospel, uh, we see that uh, he is merely called a man uh, who ran up to him. And later uh, we see that he had great possessions. So at least in Mark's gospel, we get the indication that he is a rich man. 
Uh, the fact that he ran may say something to his youth, but we don't need to uh, infer that from Mark's text. Matthew and Luke both also refer to this uh, man. It's Luke who lets us know that he is young, and Matthew that lets us know that he is uh, referred to as a ruler. And so he has famously throughout church history been known as the rich young ruler. And many people have sought to kind of unpack that. What does that mean? Is he uh, some sort of prince? Is he uh, someone who is merely uh, a ruler uh, in the sense that he has great uh, wealth and because of his wealth has uh, authority perhaps over many different uh, areas, uh, geographical places, servants perhaps? Or, as some have hypothesized, that uh, due to this man's piety, as it is seen, as he uh, seems to think that he has been able to keep the second table of God's law, uh, all those things that uh, reference the flourishing of human relationships and God's law and the Ten Commandments that have to do with these horizontal uh, commands that Jesus gives us that... that uh, give the standard for what love ought to be between one another, what does the man say? He says, these things I've done from my youth. And it does not seem to be entirely a vain uh, thing for him to say. Perhaps in, in his own estimation he has kept it. Perhaps even in the estimation of others he has kept it. And so some have hypothesized that this man being referenced as a ruler had actually been at a very young age uh, sort of climbed the uh, ladder so to speak even um, in the synagogue where he had become what was called a ruler which would be like an elder uh, those people were usually called elders because they were typically older uh, men in the faith at that time, uh, but perhaps even at a young age, because of his piety, he had risen to that kind of leadership position uh, within the synagogue, and those were called rulers at that time. In fact, the idea that we have a ruling elder is actually linked to uh, that kind of pattern within synagogue worship, and and so we don't know exactly if that is the case, but it seems to uh, be reasonable. Um, but we can't say one way or another if he was or he was not. Uh, but obviously, he was young. Obviously, he was wealthy. And obviously, within his life, even at a young age, he carried a certain amount of leadership and authority. We just don't know in what sphere uh, that leadership and authority was. Some have gone as far as to try and hypothesize who the rich young ruler is. Uh, and there have been a couple of suggestions. The reality is the text doesn't tell us. Um, and, and so anything that we could try to infer would, would be merely hypothesis without any way of saying one way or the other. I remember once upon a time hearing the old radio preacher J. Vernon McGee uh, actually ad adamantly uh, say that it was in fact John Mark uh, who was the rich young ruler. Uh, and, and it may be, we don't know. Uh, he was certainly wealthy. Uh, we will see later on in the Passion Week of our Lord at a certain time when uh, Jesus is betrayed. There is a young man who runs away in a linen uh, undergarment, literally running away practically naked, and he is unnamed. And yet, uh, there seems to be every indication that that was indeed Mark, uh, who ran away at the time that Jesus was arrested. Not as uh, one of the twelve disciples, mind you, he was not one of the twelve disciples or the twelve uh, apostles. But he seems to have been present during and around the time of Jesus' ministry. Uh, many people believe that it was actually in Mark's own home that the Last Supper took 
place. Uh, and, and so here is a young man of wealth living in the capital city uh, who is a Jew who uh, has uh, been raised in the faith, who was pious, uh, and yet even later on in his life, what do we see? We see that when times got tough uh, in his missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, uh, John Mark <laughs> almost literally jumps ship um, and goes back home because the times were tough. And we see that, that Paul really sort of took a hard uh, position on, on Mark's attitude at that time and his inability to withstand uh, the suffering that they had to endure in their missionary journeys. And ultimately that would lead to a split between John Mark, uh, excuse me, between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, a division that was uh, certainly um, grievous in one sense because, because these two brothers were split apart. And yet, even there, uh, we can see God's providence as one team of missionaries became two as Barnabas split off with John Mark and they went their way spreading the gospel. Paul brought Silas along and they went their way spreading the gospel uh, throughout uh, the, the nations surrounding uh, the Mediterranean at that time. We know from church history that ultimately John Mark would uh, grow out of uh, that place of, call it what you will, fear or immaturity, um, and ultimately would give his life in his hometown in Africa. Uh, where he would be a martyr who was dragged through the streets behind a horse twice before his death. And, and so is Mark the rich young ruler? We don't know. We do know that there's enough to say that there seems to have been a little bit of the rich young ruler in Mark, even if he was not the rich young ruler himself. And that's enough for us to at least consider if there is, and I would say there is, a bit of the rich young ruler in us. And so uh, let's look here at this text and see what we can see. The first thing that I want to remind you of, we, we jumped back into Mark last week. I, I told you that I was kind of uh, reticent to jump back in. And the first thing that we had to deal with was divorce. Um, it was a long uh, Sunday, last Sunday, there was a lot to get through, and I really did not want to have to go back and revisit it again this week. And so it was a long week, and we didn't really deal with the context of where we have been in Mark. And so I want to remind you that one of the themes that started to become reoccurring right before we left off before the season of Advent was this idea that the disciples had vision. Uh, remember Jesus healing the blind man. And remember how that when he healed this blind man, it happened in two stages. We didn't see that happening very often. Most often when we saw some kind of, uh, of, of uh, disease or uh, malady that was coming face to face with Jesus, what would happen? If it was a fever... Jesus touched the person with fever, and the fever, what? Fled away. Uh, if it was uncleanness through leprosy or some other disease, and Jesus touched that person, instead of Jesus becoming unclean like any of the rest of us would, what happened? The person became clean instead of Jesus becoming unclean. If the person was dead, instead of Jesus becoming unclean by touching a corpse, according to the law, that person became undead. He would they raised from the dead. And we've seen that. And, and so uh, it obviously was not somehow that this man's blindness was somehow now uh, a greater hurdle for Jesus to get over. You know, he wasn't, you know, like a pole vaulter uh, going up against a higher uh, standard and suddenly, oh, he, he fumbles. I better take that one again. And, and, and then he's able to then heal the man on the second go around. No, Jesus was trying to teach his disciples and he was trying to teach us something. And what happened with that man? There was an initial partial healing. 
And where he went from being completely blind to being able to what? He's, he had vision. He could see what he described as men that looked like trees walking around. And then after Jesus spits, <laughs> literally, uh, and, and, and puts his fingers in his eye holes, what happens? What was blurry vision becomes clarity, and the man can see clearly. And from there, we started to extrapolate and see examples of how that the disciples themselves had vision, but lacked clarity. How? Well, because they could see, uh, remember from Mark chapter 8, that that crucial moment right at the middle of Mark's gospel, uh, that where everyone else was saying that Jesus was a good man, he might be a prophet, he might even be one of the prophets raised from the dead, perhaps. But Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, what? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He, they had a vision. And yet, even from that place, what? They still were misunderstanding what Jesus' mission was, what their role was. And so they had vision, but they lacked clarity. And so that's something that we're going to see continues to happen here in Mark's gospel as we continue. I'll also remind you uh, that all of the gospels are referred to lovingly as passion narratives, <coughs> meaning that they have to do primarily with the passion, the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in the last week of his life and leading up to the crucifixion and obviously his death, burial, and ultimate resurrection. And Mark's is almost, most especially this way. They're called passion narratives with long intros. And so we had almost... Ten, eight, eight chapters of intro, and at chapter 8, at Peter's uh, exclamation that Jesus is the Christ, there's a turning point in Mark's gospel, and he begins moving rapidly towards the finish line, so to speak, of Jesus' passion. So much so that in chapter 8, we were roughly a year and a half into Jesus' three-year ministry. Uh, that was not very long ago for us. We're in the beginning of chapter 10. And literally in chapter 11, we will be in the last week of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry leading up to his passion and ultimate res uh, crucifixion and resurrection. And so now things are beginning to speed up rapidly uh, for Mark, who is already moving at a very uh, quick pace. And so here we still see that even in this example with uh, the little children, with the rich young ruler, because next week as we continue in the text, we're going to see the confusion, the lack of clarity that the disciples still have. Uh, because they have vision, but they do not have full clarity. And there is within the disciples a remaining desire for greatness. A remaining desire for greatness, right? We've already seen them arguing over who is the greatest in the kingdom, right? Which is laughable when they're standing next to Jesus, <laughs> okay? Now, obviously, they're not saying that they're greater than him, but it is quite funny to think of them arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom when they're standing next to the greatest being uh, of all time. And, and this desire that they still have for greatness is about to be on display again. Even through Jesus' call to be his children and the discussion with the rich young ruler about wealth and the kingdom of God. And Jesus has a call, right? Even through these little children, what does he say? That unless you become like a little child, what do you say? Not... You might struggle to enter the kingdom of God. What does he say? You will not enter the kingdom of God. You've got to become like a child. And then here, this, this man who, by all outward appearances, is killing it. 
right? He's young and rich. Usually you have to wait till you're later in life to have some amount of wealth, to be rich and young. And then not only rich and young, he's got some kind of leadership and authority within his society in some sphere of his own life. And, and so by all outward appearances, I mean, this is a guy to be emulated, right? I mean, this would be the guy that everyone would be trying to come and do the circuit in the high schools and the colleges to give keynote addresses. Be like this guy, right? He's young, and yet he's still, he's been successful. He's, he's a leader. This is who you ought to emulate. And yet here, he comes to the Lord, and instead of the Lord going, wow, this guy is great. He should be on our team. I think it's time for 13 disciples instead of 12. Let's make room. He instead does what? He I would say graciously unveils the idolatry that still exists in this young man's heart. So the, the disciples have vision but not clarity. Just after this interaction, and Mark is, again, this is no accident, just after this interaction, and not to get ahead of ourselves too much, but even next week we will see again uh, it's like, okay, well, maybe let's not argue about who's going to be the greatest, but Jesus, who's going to sit at your right hand? Right? There's still this desire for greatness that's going on, even in the face of these interactions that the disciples are witnessing that Jesus is having when he's saying, no, you don't get it. In the kingdom, you need to be like a child. In the kingdom, you give up in order to gain. Uh, and everything is sort of backwards and upside down in so many ways. Uh, there's also, again, an indication here in our text that points to that great question that Mark has sort of rhetorically been asking again and again and again, which is what? Do you remember what the original question is? Who is this Jesus? And so let's see if you catch it today. Let's look again at the text. First of all, at this interaction with the children. And it says they were bringing children to him. Uh, Luke tells us they were also bringing children to him. That this had become almost kind of a pattern. That as people, the crowds would gather around Jesus. And he would be teaching and healing people. That there were some who were bringing children. And it is Luke also who lets us know in the parallel passage. That it wasn't just children. Luke's word is infant. It's babies. It's, it's those who were helpless, sort of, to uh, come to Jesus themselves. They had to be brought, and they had to be placed uh, in his arms. And what do the disciples do? They, they rebuke them. They don't necessarily rebuke the children. They are rebuking the people who are bringing the children to Jesus. And what is sort of the implication? The implication in the disciples' uh, thinking and in their actions is what? Hey, don't bother the master now, I think is Matthew's uh, words that he uses, uh, that the disciples were saying. Don't, don't bother the master. This is a bother. This is, this is a problem. Um, and uh, this week I was reminded by a brother who was uh, preaching uh, out of Psalm 127. Don't you, aren't you glad? That God said that children are a heritage from the Lord and not a hassle from the Lord. Uh, and he was just kind of playing around. But it's true that, that all throughout Scripture, God's heart is for children, even little children, for babies. Uh, within the law, the infants were provided for. And how many times do we see uh, the crying out of God over the spilling of children's blood and, and over those who who were being sacrificed to false gods. And we know that uh, the song we used to sing in Sunday school is true, is it not? That Jesus loves the little children. And here we see that love on display. We see that affection because when the disciples are rebuking people, saying, don't bother the master, Jesus turns around and rebukes the disciples. 
In fact, here in Mark's gospel, he says what? They, that he was indignant. That it wasn't like, guys, come on. No, he got up and said, no, you need to stop. I love the King James. Suffer the little children to come to me. Suffer the children to come to me. No, let, let make it your bother to bring them to me. And do whatever it takes so that they may come. And what do we see Jesus do? He points to these children and he uses them as an object lesson for the disciples and for us. And he says, look at this child. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's important for us to remember Paul's words in Corinthians when he says, Do not be a child in your understanding, but rather as it regards to what he calls malice. And so when Jesus tells us to be like little children, he's not saying to, to not try to understand the deep things of the kingdom, but rather to put away malice, to not let things stand in the way of innocently coming to Jesus in, in, a, in a way that is ready to embrace all that he has for you. You see, if a little child had been told by Jesus, you know what, little child, all you have to do is give away everything you possess and you can have me. How quickly would that little child say, that's it. And give it all away so that they could be with Jesus. That is the heart of a child. And it's something that Jesus is pointing out, both in what he's saying to the disciples, but ultimately what will be seen in the rich young ruler. Why? Because to sell everything he has... And follow Jesus means to not only give up his possessions, it means to give up his role of authority, his position of leadership. It means to leave behind everything that he has come to find identity in. For do we not still refer to him as the rich young ruler? And here Jesus points to these children, he says that, that you must become like a child. And then look at verse 16. Mark tells us that he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, of course, in Hebrew culture and, and all of the Near East culture, the placing of a hand on the head of a person was a sign of blessing. It usually, it is associated with a prayer. And in the best cases, in the cases like that of Abraham blessing Isaac, of Isaac blessing Jacob, of Jacob blessing his sons and praying over them, who are they praying to? The one who's sitting there in Mark chapter 10 holding these babies. Which means what? That when Jesus lays his hand on these infant children and it says that he blesses them, this is more than just a display. Because if the Son of God blesses you, you are blessed indeed. There is a transfer of grace that is happening here between Jesus and these children. For, of course, all of Christ's blessings are gifts of his own grace. And this is a beautiful thing. And it's something that we should consider, not only in our own lives and what does it mean for us to become like children, to put away malice, to forsake the things that would hold us back from embracing all that Christ may have for us, to sing with uh, Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, so that I may have this one who is for me a mighty fortress and shelter. But also, as it pertains how we treat children.
Because so often we still think that the kids maybe can't handle too much Jesus stuff. And we are quick to usher them away instead of bringing them to the feet of Jesus and remembering that Jesus loving the little children is not just a cute little song, it's the truth. And we, we don't know. We, we can't necessarily see all of the blessings that they are receiving from Christ when we bring them to Him. We bring them to the church. We keep them in the pews. We teach them about the Word of God. We don't sugarcoat it for them. We just might give it to them in bite-sized pieces. And we let them wrestle. We let them question. We let them think. But we don't ever stop bringing them to Jesus and asking Him to bless them and believing that He will because He loves them. Amen? Amen. And then as He finishes, we see that He's about to, to move. He's, he's changing uh, course and He's going on a journey. He's going to move from where He is uh, which is near uh, the Jordan River, beyond the Jordan River, and, and he's moving. And as he's getting ready to go, uh, a young man comes running up to him, which, again, if this is a wealthy man, if he is a ruler, if he has some kind of position of authority, the very fact that he was running is already an indication that something is going on. If you remember the story that Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, that there is great emphasis upon the father who picks up his robes and runs to the prodigal son as he sees him off in the distance. This was an action of impropriety. This was not minding your P's and Q's. And if you were rich and wealthy and a ruler, you had people to run for you, right? That's what we still call runners. Just today they get paid, right? They were servants who would go and do the running for you there was a message that needed to go to someone, if there was something that needed to be purchased or, or acquired, you would send a runner to go for you, and you would, it would be far from you to actually go and run yourself. And yet this man uh, comes with some sense of urgency. He's trying to catch Jesus before he gets away, and he runs to him. Now we've already seen, and again, I remind you, some people have hypothesized that this was a ruler in the synagogue, that he had some kind of clerical authority. That, and in this place, we've already seen what? We've seen the scribes and the Pharisees coming to Jesus. And how do they come to Jesus? They don't come to Jesus seeking his wisdom. They don't come to Jesus uh, trying to uh, gain from him the blessing of God. They come trying to trap him, trying to trick him. They come with false pretenses. But here, we see this rich young ruler run to Jesus. He puts impropriety to the side. He runs to Jesus, and then he falls down at his feet. This is also interesting because if he is a ruler in the synagogue, in Jewish culture, whenever sons, even adult sons, would come to visit their father in their father's house, it was customary for them to bow to their father, with one exception. If any of this father's sons became rulers in the synagogue or rabbis in their own right, when they entered the house, the father would bow to them. Uh, this was a big deal. And so here this rich young ruler comes and where in most of his life, perhaps, he has people bowing to him, if not to him physically, at least to his will, according to his authority. Here, he immediately prostrates himself in front of Jesus. And so what do we see in that? We see in that a kind of sincerity, a kind of sincerity that we have not seen necessarily with the other scribes and Pharisees. And so he comes, he runs up. He falls down at Jesus' feet. 
And he says something to him. He says something that Jesus will latch onto. He says what? He says, good teacher. So he's coming. He's coming with sincerity. He's coming with urgency. He prostrates himself before the Lord. And he pays homage to him in a certain sense. An, an earthly kind of homage. He doesn't say, good God or good Lord or, or even just Lord. But he calls him good teacher. Which means what? That this man, like the disciples, has some vision and yet not total clarity. Good teacher, he says. And then what? He asks a question, a question I would say is probably, in some sense, the ultimate question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus kind of ignores his question initially. What does he ask him? He says, why do you call me good? Sure, probably kind of knocked the guy off balance a little bit. I've come with urgency. I'm like sweating, and I'm, I'm probably he's probably still on the ground, asking the most important question of my life. And you're you're hung up because I called you good. Like just trying to pay you some respect. What, what what do you mean? And Jesus doesn't give him time to answer. Instead, he says, "No one is good except God." Alone. No one is good except God alone. He he sort of brings the young man's uh, worldview into perspective. This young man was guilty of doing what we're so guilty of so often, which is using words uh, just sort of however we want. Uh, one of the ones I'm probably most guilty of is the word awesome. Right? Everything. Isn't that even a, isn't that from the Lake Boat movie? Everything is awesome. Like, uh, if everything is awesome, nothing is, number one. Uh, and number two, awe has meaning. And so if something is awesome, it means that it ought to be something that brings us to a place of actual awe. But most of the things that we call awesome aren't really awesome. Perhaps what we are worse uh, or more guilty of is the word love. Because I can love my wife and I can love pizza. I can love my kids and I can love, you know, uh, playing a sport. And yet, even though we know that those things are not, or at least I hope we know that those things are not on the same level, uh, we use the word, right? But the love that I have for my wife is certainly different than the love that I have for pizza. And this man uses the word good. He calls the teacher good. And Jesus calls him out on it because he's just using the word without really thinking about what it means. Because goodness has a standard. Truth has a standard. Beauty has a standard. And truth, goodness, and beauty have a standard that is found in God himself. And so Jesus tells the man truly, no one is good except God alone. He alone is good. Paul will extrapolate on this in Romans 3, will he not? When he says, there are none who are good. No one does good. No one seeks for God, he says. And here, Jesus tells this man, no one is good except for God. What's the implication? This is the, who is this Jesus rhetorical question that Mark is presenting us in this part of the text. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Well, let's ask the question, was Jesus good according to the holy righteous standard of truth, beauty, and goodness? Yes, he alone is good. Why? Because he alone is God. And Mark is answering this question for us again. Who is this Jesus? He is the one who is good, which means what? If he is good, God alone is good. If he is good, he is God. And as God, he alone has the authority to answer 
this man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so again, he doesn't leave the young man with any uh, space to answer anything, to answer for himself. He just moves directly right into answering his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus says what? You know the commandments. Obviously, if this man is a Jew, if he is a ruler in the synagogue, if he if he does have some kind of authority, clerical authority, then, then certainly he knows the commandments. Likely they're bound to him physically at that very moment, perhaps on his forehead or on his arm. They're probably in a box on his door, his house. He rehearses them regularly. You know the commandments, Jesus says. And what does Jesus do? He jumps immediately to the second table of the law. What does that mean? Well, we're not necessarily referring to the tablets of stone that the law was written on. Uh, but it is helpful perhaps to think of that. Uh, because we know that Moses had tablets of stone that the law was written on. First written by God. And Moses came down from the mountain and see, saw the people in great sin, and in his anger sinned himself by casting down the tablets of stone uh, and breaking them. God brings, brings him back up on the mountain and says, right, this time you, you chisel it out. <laughs> and so uh, we have these tablets of stone. But when we say two tables of the law, we're referring to the direction of the laws that were commanded. When we refer to the first table of the law, we're referring to those first commandments that are given, that are given by God to the people that have implications on their relationship with God. And so it, it has to do with the flourishing of that divine relationship between God and man. And God gives commands for those that begin and are summed up in what? They're summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. All of the, those commands, the first table of law, are summed up in that. And they have to do with our vertical relationship between us and God. But the second table of the law were commands that God gave for the flourishing of human relationships on a horizontal plane, if you will. All the ways that we are meant to interact with and display our love for one another. And Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And the man hears him. He says, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. The other gospels uh, add something that Mark kind of implies to Jesus' words here. What, what am I lacking? Which means that even though this man had been seeking to keep the law of God, yet the reason he's running with such pressing urgency to get to the Lord is because he still feels like he lacks something. He hasn't found that blessed assurance that says, you, you've, you've done it. I mean, Moses told the people, do this and live. Right? Here it is how you inherit eternal life. Jesus, I've kept these things from my youth. This also lets us know that he likely was not around on the day that Jesus preached that great sermon on the mount. Because if he had been around on that day, he might have come to a different conclusion on his keeping of that law. Why? Because it was on the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, you think that you've kept, I'm paraphrasing here, okay, you think that you've kept the law to not murder just because you didn't kill your neighbor when he ticked you off. But I say to you that if you've even hated someone in your heart, or even called someone an idiot, uh-oh, Jesus says what? That you've already broken that command in your heart. You think that just because you haven't cheated on your wife 
physically with your neighbor's wife, that you've kept the commandment not to commit adultery, I say to you that if you've even looked upon a woman lustfully, you've already broken that command in your heart. Which means what? That the keeping of these commands is more than outward uh, uh, submission to the external letter of the law, but rather begins in the heart. This is why Martin Luther would say to his people that it is by keeping the first commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that you will keep the other nine. And it is in breaking the first commandment to not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that you will and do break the other nine. And so he would ultimately come down and say what? Love God and do what you want. Because if you love God, you will want to do what pleases Him. But this young man has was obviously not there on that day. He has looked, taken an assessment of his life and said, what? These things I've, I've done from my youth. I've done these things. I, I haven't committed murder. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen. I haven't borne false witness or defrauded. I've honored my father and my mother. We don't have time to get into all the different ways that we break these commands, but I will go as far as to say that this man so far misunderstood the intention of the law that he broke those things that day and just didn't even realize it because he broke them in his heart the same way that you and I do every day. And by breaking them in our heart, what? We are guilty of those things. Jesus sees his misunderstanding. Because what is the law supposed to do for us? The law, the law kills. It cuts down. It destroys. When we go to it for merit. When we go to it for merit, the law has only one use for us, and it's to kill, to cut down, and to destroy. And what was this young man's question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, just give it to me. Whatever it is, give me the list. And it's funny because if he had said in that day, there's a giant mountain east of here, that some people are eventually going to call the Himalayas. And if you'll climb to the top of that mountain and pick from the top of that mountain some rare local flower and bring it back to me, you will have eternal life. I bet that guy would say, I'll pack my bags right now. I'm on my way. The problem is, is that there is nothing that this man can do to inherit or merit justification from God. And Jesus is trying to expose that for him. That's why he goes to the second table of law. And he's like, no, no, I'm done. I'm good. He's missed it completely. Because he doesn't understand just how guilty he is, just how high the standard is, because the standard of God's law is not trying hard. Well, Jesus, I've, tried, I've done this my whole life. I've, I've sought to love my neighbor in this way by keeping these commands. And, and that's not good enough. Because what does the law, what does the standard of the law require? The standard of the law requires perfect, perpetual obedience. Perfect, perpetual obedience. There's none of this, well, you know, I had my young years where I rebelled. No. There is, from beginning to end, perfect, perpetual obedience. 
That reaches the standard of righteousness and holiness required by God's law. And anything less than that gets what? Nothing. It's Charlie the Chocolate Factory. Right? I mean, all they did was drink a little fizzy lifting juice. What is, uh, in the movie at least, Gene Wilder's famous reaction is what? Wrong! You get nothing! Right? And that's what we need to understand. That the slightest infractions of the law, even if we were to be able to keep it outwardly, the inward person of the heart, where we have hated another person, we have felt slighted by them, and in our heart, oh, if I could just, but I won't, because I know I can't kill them, because that would break God's law, but man, that idiot, I just, you've broken God's law. You've murdered them in your heart, and you get nothing. Nothing. And guess what? Abraham got nothing for his works of righteousness. Joseph got nothing. Daniel, who we don't even have anything in his life to point out and see. See, there it is. Yet he got nothing. How do we know? Because he died, he was entered into the ground, and the, it never came back up. Because after every sacrifice of every lamb, of every ram, of every bull, of every dove, of all the blood that was spilt for the sins of God's people, every time they didn't rise up from the ground, that was God saying, more blood required. And every time a righteous man, at least by our estimation, went into the ground and didn't come back up in a glorified state to never die again, the answer from God was what? Still not good enough. If only this young man knew to whom he spoke, that he was not merely speaking to a good teacher who might offer him wisdom. He was speaking to God who was able to gift him eternal life by grace. The man didn't get it with the second table of the law, so what does Jesus do? He doesn't do it explicitly, so follow with me quickly as we get ready to close. He does it implicitly. Because what does he say? He says, you lack one thing. Here's what you need to do. You ready? Go and sell all you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Jesus is essentially doing for this young man what he did for the crowds in John chapter 6. Remember that in John chapter 6, there's crowds of people that have chased Jesus around the lake because the day before, he had fed them by the thousands by giving them from a few loaves of bread and fish. They wake up in the morning at breakfast time, their tummies are rumbling, and Jesus is gone. And so what do they do? They chase him around the lake. They follow him. Here you are. Now we miss breakfast and it's lunchtime, Jesus. What's on the menu today? And what does Jesus offer them? Himself alone. And he says that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. And what do they do? They do the same thing that this young man ultimately does. They go away sorrowful. Maybe a little quicker than he did. <laughs> but Jesus ultimately says to them in John chapter 6, what, that the only thing on the menu that day is him. And the question, the rhetorical question is, is that enough for you? If Jesus is all that's on the table, is that enough for you? Jesus is graciously unveiling his heart of idolatry because what? He does not love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Instead, he has his heart set on earthly treasure. And he does essentially give him an opportunity to become the 13th disciple. He says the same thing to him that he said to all the rest, you come follow me. What did he say to Peter and John on the, the biggest day of their fishing careers? Come follow me. And what do they do? Everything that their identity was wrapped up in fishing, the nets, the boats, the sea that they knew so well, they dropped on the shore and they followed Jesus. At the time, they didn't even know who he was. At the time, they probably thought the same thing that this guy did. He's a good teacher. I've already been rejected by the other rabbis, and here this one comes and says to me that thing that I had wanted to hear my whole life. You come follow me. Likely this young man had heard that already before from someone else. And he's disheartened and disillusioned. And he doesn't realize to whom he is speaking. So Jesus takes him to the first table of the law by saying, okay, you think that you've kept the law, but this one thing you have not kept because you love money more than me. So here's what you need to do. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And you can have it. And at least from what we can tell, at least in that moment, the rich young ruler's answer was to Jesus, you're not enough. Now he may have gone eventually to heaven. If it is Mark and we don't know, and I'm not saying that it is, eventually he would give up everything and follow Jesus. We don't know what happened in the rest of this young man's life, but we do know this. What did the text tell us? That Jesus loved him. Just like he loved the little children, he loved him. And that's why it was gracious for him to unveil his idolatry. What does Jesus do to unveil our idolatry? He does the same thing. He takes things away. He strips things away. And when he does, what happens? Our idolatry is quickly unveiled. Things that we didn't even realize we had allowed to take the place of comfort, satisfaction, and joy in our hearts. We have found those things and so many lesser things than Jesus himself. And God is gracious to take it away. Sometimes he does that by taking our health or a relationship. Or a job. How quick are we to turn and shake our fists at the one who is actually graciously showing us where our hearts have strayed from? And when Jesus asks us, if I'm the only one that's on the table, am I enough? So often, our answer would have to be, no. I still want this. Or I want that. And do you know that for the rest of our lives, that will be the struggle of the flesh. But we know something that the rich young ruler did not know on that day. We know who Jesus is. And we can ask him by the Spirit to work on our hearts, to change our hearts, and cause us to love him more. To be willing to let go of those lesser things that we have found comfort, satisfaction, and joy in. So that we might even know ourselves where our hearts are truly lie.
We can do this to ourselves to a certain degree as well by merely giving things up instead of waiting for them to be stripped away. You can do this through fasting. You can do this through seasons of giving things up and not merely giving them up, but letting the act of giving them up be a part of your devotion to the Lord. We have a season of Lent that's coming soon, and there is no way, shape, or form that we as a church are going to impose any kind of legalistic requirement upon the people of the church. But we are going to say, hey, this is a good opportunity to, by your own choice, by your own volition, out of devotion to the Lord, find something, find anything. And for a season, give it up. Let loosen your grip on this thing and see what the Lord will do to graciously unveil the idolatry that still remains in your heart. Not so that you can be condemned by it, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but so that you can, with your own eyes, see this is where my heart has slipped and I didn't even know it. God, forgive me. Help me to love you more. I believe that he will be faithful to do that. But if you go into that season, you're like, that's it. I'm giving up carbs, or I'm, I'm giving up meat, or I'm giving up this thing. And that's all you do. You just literally don't eat certain things. By the end of that time, all you've done is go on a diet. It's not fasting. It's just a diet. And it may have some kind of natural... Uh, good consequence for you, perhaps. But it will have no spiritual benefit for you. If it is not actually an act of devotion to the Lord and you're saying, God, okay, I'm going to give this up for a season so that you can show me where my heart is. And I'm asking you, God, to show me how that in the absence of this, you are enough for me. We do that enough in our lives that when those times come, when things are stripped away, not by choice or volition, but by the providence of God, we'll find ourselves in a place more readily saying, not my will, O oh Lord, but your will be done in my life. You've promised to be with me, to never leave me or forsake me. Show me, just like you've done so many times. Show me. And even in this, in the absence of this or that thing, you are enough for me. He can. And he will. Do you know how I know? Because as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. And beloved Jesus loves the little children. Come to him like a child. Confess of those things that you know you have sought shelter in rather than him. Let him graciously unveil the idolatry of your heart. Forsake the idols. Tear down the altars. And give yourself as holy and completely as you can God's grace and the Spirit help you give yourself wholly and completely to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Spirit, thank you for loving us and not leaving us where we are or where we were. I pray that you would come today power and presence of your Holy Spirit that you would do what no preacher can do. That you would minister to our hearts, God, and make this word come to life. Show us where there is a bit of the rich young ruler in us. Show us, God, those areas where if you were the only thing on the table that we might be sorrowful and walk away. God, build up the faith of your people. 
build up the love of your people for you. Do that by showing us how much you loved us. Sent your son Jesus, not to just merely be a good teacher, but to be the one in whom we inherit eternal life. Not by what we do, not by any works of our own, but by the precious work and life of Jesus Christ for us in our place. We receive. as we move into a time of communion. May we all feed on Christ in our hearts by faith today. God bless you.